ready for war. Never back down. Give me some more. We came for the title. Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Hope you're doing well wherever you're listening at. In this week's episode, we have Dean Jackson. Dean is a former professional pitcher in the Arizona Diamondbacks organization. He worked at Driveline for seven years and, and had various roles within Driveline. He gets into that in this episode and, and talks about all the things that throughout the course of his coaching career that he's he's learned. Um, we talk about uh, motion capture labs and mechanics. We talk about re- uh, throwing routines. We talk about recovery. There's a lot of different areas that we get into this episode, but this is going to be specifically for pitching. So if you want to know more about pitching, this is going to be the episode for you. I'll put all of Dean's contact information in the show notes. Um, And he's someone who you're going to want to follow. He puts out some really good content on Twitter and Instagram, as well as YouTube too. So I'll put all of his information in the show notes. Appreciate him coming on the podcast. As always, thank you for listening. If you're a high school baseball player and you need help in the college recruiting process, um, you know I work with high school baseball players and help them get recruited to play in college. So please send me an email, jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com. So if you're a high school baseball player looking to get recruited to play in college, send me an email, jonesbaseballtraining at gmail.com. All right, here we go, Dean Jackson. This is the future, this is my time, I grind and shine. All right, we now welcome on to the podcast, Dean Jackson. Dean, thanks for coming on the show today, man. Patrick, thanks for having me, man. Glad to be here. So I know I've had a few people reach out to me, I would say, over the past at two to three weeks, and, and sometimes I'll have people who say like, hey, next time you do a, a hitting episode or a strength conditioning episode, you should have this guy on. And, and so I've had a couple people reach out and be like, next time you do a pitching episode, you should have this guy on. And I was like, who's this guy? And so I was Dean Jackson. So I, <laughs> that's how I found you. I've had several people uh, recommend you. Um, I know we're uh, we're both friends with a guy named Jared Gaynor. And, and he was the one, uh, one of the, one of the few people who, who recommend you too. But um, so I, I know that you're, you're a pitching guy that that's, you know, your background, but can you give everyone just like a little bit of a, of a brief background on, you know, kind of just an elevator pitch on, on how you got to where you're at right now? hundred percent. Yeah. So, uh, well, first I'll take that as a compliment people reaching out. Absolutely. So for those people who did, thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate that you guys, uh, find value in what I do. Um, so quick elevator pitch, um, tried to walk on, I'll make this real quick. Tried to walk out at a D1 at a high school, was cut. Went to an NAIA. Uh, by my sophomore year at an NAIA, I was up to 97. Uh, then big hip surgery, dropped down to about 87 by my junior year. So uh, at that point, I got a bunch of uh, big-time people who make decisions with organizations coming to watch some NAIA kid throw 87. So that was great. Um then uh, at that point in time, basically, I mean, the year was uh, early 2010s. So nobody really thought you'd get better at baseball, right? And uh, driveline was becoming a big thing. Uh, they, to me, it was the lighthouse for where people who thought you could get better at baseball went to try and figure it out. So I packed up my stuff and I went. Um, so uh, by my senior year, it's back up to uh, 94. Uh Ended up signing as a free agent with the uh, Diamondbacks All-Star that year. Um, ended up tearing my UCL 
in that off season trying to sell out to throw harder because if you top 94, that means you sit about 91 and that ain't hard enough. Um, so, uh, toward the UCL, um, I started working at driveline, but always wanted to keep playing. Uh, so kept trying to figure out my elbow. We kept doing things wrong. So we kept having the wrong surgeries. So it never fixed the problem. The problem was very hard to solve. I won't get all into it. Um, but uh, ended up having five elbow surgeries over the last seven years now. Uh, spent seven years working at driveline. Worked at positions from uh, floor trainer to running the online program to uh, my favorite one was the director of special projects, where basically they just like told me to find problems and solve them. So I spent a bunch of time uh, mapping out the kinetic chain of how energy transfers within the throw over at driveline. We, they had uh, I'm no longer there, but uh, when I was there. Um, there were about 10,000 motion capture takes of different athletes. So anywhere from the best hardest throwers on the planet to the guys who are like 10 and throw really slow and uh, probably won't play baseball past 11. Um, so <laughs> spent a bunch of time figuring out how does the throw work. Uh, the next big problem uh, that they, that I got to attack was redoing the return to throw program after surgery. So basically figuring out, okay, uh, what do we need to measure? How do we measure it? What's the best way to do it in a scalable way? And and then how can we get this out uh, to people to improve the process? So um, recently left driveline at the beginning of this year, still trying to play. So right now I train guys on my own, which we were just talking about. Um, and then uh, just actually yesterday uh, hit 95 for the first time in shoot, I don't know, three years, four years, something like that. Have a little ways to go. I, I should be around a hundred when I get all healthy. Um, give or take a couple. Um, so I got a couple months left uh, to uh, recover from that, but that's the elevator pitch. So I know we we're in the elevator for longer than we wanted, but there we are. <laughs> that was fantastic. I love that. Uh, go, going back to what you said earlier, we talked about in college, uh, you were going to walk on your, did you say you did walk on or try to walk on? You got cut. Yeah, I tried to walk on and I wasn't given a tryout. So, okay, so you didn't really walk on, you didn't really get a chance. So how did yeah. you go from, because let's be honest, there's not that many high school kids out there throwing low 90s who who don't get some sort of opportunity somewhere. It sounds like early on, though, you said your sophomore year, you're up to 97. So what what happened in those first couple of years that allowed you to make a massive jump? Yeah. Um, so out of high school, um, I want to preface this by saying, like, my genetics were crazy so i didn't do anything training wise in high school uh and as a senior in high school i would regularly touch 92 so like i wouldn't lift i didn't like sure we played long toss every once in a while but it's nothing that everybody listening to this doesn't do right um i didn't do anything for that that other people didn't do so uh i got a little bit older and people started catching up to me in terms of velocity and i started being like oh shoot like i need to learn what i need to do you know so started understanding how do throwing programs work getting in the weight room for the first time like i'd never been in the weight room before uh, and all the basic stuff that people do now so um general full body strength and conditioning uh understanding uh basically strengthening the scapular stabilizers strengthening the rotator cuff muscles um and then having a an actual throwing program of like okay we have a plan here instead of just rolling out to the field on random days with no idea uh and that took me pretty quickly from 92 to 97 i mean you you take a, a kid i was at that time six 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 seven about 190 pounds so pretty quickly it turned into six seven two twenty um and uh 
yeah, I mean, it, it was just, it was all the basic stuff. I just had a, a higher floor to begin with. The and hip, hip surgery, that's rare too for a college yes. kid. Yeah, well, yes and no. So um, my hip range of motion is very low. So I actually have negative internal rotation on both hips. So okay. I can't, I have zero, like worse than zero internal rotation, like negative five on both hips. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. So I would watch how these guys would throw and how they'd create power with their backside. And I tried to mimic them. And uh, I created a bunch of power, but what I ended up doing was shoving bone into bone on that back hip and uh, grinding the labrum in between it. So a uh, lesson that uh, sometimes you learn lessons and it's hard, <laughs> you know, uh, you're a kid, you don't know much, you do things that uh, you think are good and, and you learn the hard way that they're not. And sometimes uh, you got a bigger price to pay on some of those. And that was one of those instances. So why are you still trying to play? It's a great question. Um, to be completely honest with you, getting deep here, to be completely honest with you, I think this is the main purpose of my life in this stage of life. I think this is what I was put here to do. Um, whether or not I continue, whether or not I actually achieve playing, uh, I think the point of my life, what I was put here to do is to uh, chase it, solve a bunch of problems along the way, bottle up those problems, the solutions. So, well, first identifying the problems, because that's a big thing is, is you can't solve anything if you don't know what it is to solve. So identifying the things that are holding people back, identifying these problems, uh, getting solutions, uh, bottling them up in a way that can be delivered to others and doing that. So uh, I, I love going, I mean, I'm 29 now, I'll be 30 next February. Um, obviously it doesn't look, not playing in seven years and being almost 30 is just like not good. Um, but for me, I love every single day of going at this. I mean, we were talking about how crazy my schedule is right now, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, I really do think I'm in the exact spot of where I'm supposed to be. So I'm just plugging and chugging and, and, uh, doing what I can along the way. So is, is probably the goal. What is it? Indie ball. And then getting, like, is that the vision indie ball and then getting signed out of indie ball? It kind of depends. So, um, I talked to the handful of scouts cause, uh, most of them I just played with anyways, cause I'm almost 30 now. So they're all <laughs> friends of mine, <laughs> uh, but, uh, it, it depends. So if I'm topping like mid nineties, high nineties, well, if I'm topping like 97 or so, then it's like, it's a little bit different, you know, it's like five elbow surgeries, a hip high 30, you know, but if I'm throwing like one Oh two, and, and the breaking ball looks good. It, it just all depends. So um, I know a lot of people ask about the rehab. They ask, like, oh, what's your timeline look like? What are you trying to do? And I just try and get rid of anything beyond the next step. So mm -hmm. whatever the next step is for me, that's what I try and focus on. Uh, because, I mean, when you have rehab for seven years, you kind of realize that um, timelines and expectations beyond the first step only really bring anxiety. Because uh, if they happen, great, they were supposed to happen. And if they don't, well, now you're kind of freaking out. So yeah. I do my best to just get rid of those. And uh, what are we at in the situation right now? What do I need to do to go one step beyond that and just attack that? Love that. Just a little bit better every day. Yeah, I love that. Yep. So you've done so much research, analysis. Mm -hmm. You talked earlier from the best pitchers on the planet to you yep. know kids 10 years old. If someone who is just an average coach asked you, like, Dean, what – What's the common, like, what, what's the secret sauce? What's, the, what is the best of the best do at every single level? Like, what would you tell them? 
from which perspective? From uh, like a, uh, maybe a motion capture perspective. It, it sounds like you did a lot in the lab and from like yes. a mechanical standpoint, like what would be, what's something that from like a mechanical standpoint that you have to do if you want to be an elite pitcher? Yeah. And I do want to add one thing okay. uh, in there um, just because I think it paints a more complete picture. Um, it wasn't just me in the lab. Obviously uh, my role was, I understand how it feels to do it. And I can speak the language of the guys who are running the data, if that makes sense. So I work with some incredible people, people like Kyle Lindley, Kyle Wasserberger, uh, Anthony Brady, Alex Caravan, guys like, like um, all guys that, that people have probably heard of if they, if they know uh, data over at driveline. Um, but I uh, just wanted to clear that up. So people don't think I'm some savant that just does it all by myself. Um, <laughs> But uh, like strictly in terms of uh, throwing velocity, in terms of healthy, uh, give me a little more. Um, both, I'd say. I'd say both. Okay. Yeah, I'm not. My okay. background is more so on the hitting side, so I'm I'm very curious to to hear you pick your brain. Sure, sure. So um, here's what we expected to find. We expected to find that oh, this is a slam dunk. It's super easy. Uh, the pitchers who throw the hardest. They just have the best mechanics. And what do we mean by the best mechanics? They just generate a bunch of energy in their lower half, and they transfer more energy from piece to piece than everybody else. So by the time it gets to the arm, uh, they just have more energy than everybody else. They're moving faster than everyone else. Uh, and that's how the ball comes out the hardest. That's what we expected to find. Um, and that's not what we found at all. Um, so throwing velocity, you can kind of branch it into two things. One is mechanical efficiency and exactly what I just described to you there. So you're sending energy from piece to piece uh, in the body with the bigger, more powerful, stronger muscles and bigger segments um, earlier on, like the legs, the hips, the trunk. Uh, and then you transfer those to the smaller ones like the arm, right? But every piece in the kinetic chain is a stretch shortening cycle. So now what that means is the energy has to load into that piece and then that piece takes all of that energy and then rebounds it to the next one like a rubber band. So if those rubber bands are not up to par, um, and rubber band is an oversimplification, I know someone's going to be watching this and be like, it's a muscle tendon unit, the muscle and the connective tissue. Like, I know, I'm just trying to do my best here. Um, so if those rubber bands are not up to par uh, or can't, rebound all the energy that's coming in you can't take advantage of it so think about uh if you obviously have a lifting background think about those thick blue bands that people squat with and then think about those little red bands that people do for like arm care right if you loaded the same amount of energy into each of those bands the red one's gonna get gonna give back way less than the blue one will uh and that's true also in throwing velocity so what we found was basically like yes having good mechanics meaning you transfer energy from piece to piece more efficiently is great. It absolutely helps you throw harder. But uh, if you look at the best of the best, I am confident I could give you 10. I could like select uh, 10 motion capture takes and I would be tricky with it on purpose, but I'm confident you could not tell who threw 81 and who threw hundred. Uh, so it comes down to a lot more. And I got, I got berated for this on Twitter a while back where I was talking about how important genetics are and how important the physical adaptations are. Um, and your epigenetics, it's more than just what you were born with. It's how your body adapts and things like that. But those physical adaptations 
are insanely important. So to kind of sum that whole thing up, throwing velocity is two things. How well can you transfer energy from piece to piece throughout the chain? But once that energy is loaded into that piece, how much it rebounds to the next one is completely dependent on the physical properties of that piece. So it's kind of those two things. You mentioned genetics. Could you like dive in a little bit more what you mean by that? Because I think when some people hear that, they're like, oh, I got it or I don't. Yes. Yeah, 100%. So um, there are a bunch of structures in the body that do different things. So basically everything in the body is a stress recovery adaptation cycle. So you apply a stress. And this is just training. So it sounds fancy. It's just not. You do something like push-ups, uh, and that's the stress. Now, what does the stress do? It breaks down very specific structures in your body in specific ways. So with a push-up example, you break down the muscles in your chest, uh, in your triceps, um, not just the muscle. You'll also load the bones, the uh, tendons, the ligaments, um, all that. And you break that down. And then that breaking down sends a signal to the body of like, hey, man, we got to go rebuild that to like actually because uh, it's broken down. We got to rebuild it. But we got to rebuild it in a way that makes it better at doing what it had done before. Right. So it sends uh, building blocks, which is your food, uh, to those places to rebuild that stuff in those very specific ways. And then everything that you get, all the recovery is just back to baseline. And everything above baseline is called an adaptation. That's something you didn't have before. So in training, we focus a lot on the stress because that's what we can uh, really tight. Like you think about anybody in uh, like if you're writing a hitting program or if I'm writing a throwing program or a lifting program or anything like that, we're focusing on the stress. But what we can only we can't control it. We can only influence it by trying to make the person healthy. But that recovery and adaptation process is what I'm referring to when I talk about the genetics. So um, great example, I can think of two guys in my head right now. I put both of them, same age, same initial ability. I put both of them through uh, the same Olympic lifting program uh, a couple of years back. Uh, one guy in four months went from a 225 to a 295 power clean. One guy went from 225 to 235. And they were right next to each other doing the same stuff every day. Both were crushing their diet. Both were doing a great job on the sleep end of things. Um, and that's that's what I mean by genetics is just because you can play the game doesn't mean it's a fair game. Uh, and it sucks. It's not a fun, popular topic to talk about. But that was one of the biggest things that I personally took away from all the research was, holy crap, how important uh, that recovery and adaptation process is. And you can definitely influence it. Like if you, if you take terrible care of your body, if you don't eat well, you're stressed all the time, um, you uh, don't sleep well, like all those things are going to make you way worse. But there's a lot of it you can't control. And it's a disappointing reality. But that was one of the big things. And that's what I mean by genetics. What about height? What about height? Short, tall? Does it matter? What's your thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah. So it matters in a couple ways um, from my perspective. The first one is the longer levers you're going to be able to apply more force with. So same type thing. If you were just trying to like stick a two by four under a rock and move it type thing. If you had a tiny little two by four, that's really short. Like you're not going to be able to move the rock, but if you get this whole long, like 10 foot long two by four, then great. You'll have more leverage on it uh, with the same amount of force because the lever is longer. You'll be able to apply more force to that rock. So that's the first one. But the second one, which I think people don't think about very often, is the hormones 
and the receptiveness of the body to those hormones to actually grow. Like you don't, it's not just two people that are the same thing and one person ends up being really tall and the other person doesn't. Uh, there are different hormones that control that during the, um, during the growing process. So those hormones also end up building adaptations. Like it's more than just, oh, your bones got bigger. Um, like uh, the only reason I know this is because my stepsister um, was supposed to be four foot eight, but she was actually prescribed HGH when her growth plates were open. And the whole point was because she will grow taller. Now, instead of being four foot eight, she ended up being five foot six. So uh, that, and obviously anybody who's kept up with uh, the PED era in baseball knows that that's something that people did to try and get better. Now I'm not sitting here being like, oh, you need to take performance enhancing drugs. You absolutely should not. Um, but it is important to acknowledge that those guys who end up getting taller when they were in puberty either had more HGH or a better receptiveness to that. And HGH does more than build bones. There's also a huge role in connective tissue development, like those adaptations that we talked about. Um, so yeah, it, it helps a lot. Like, again, it, the game isn't fair and it's disappointing and I hate to, uh, it's a very Debbie Downer point, uh, but height, that's how I look at height is two different ways is uh, one, the levers are longer, but two, they probably had a, a better, um, they probably adapted better to their throwing when they were a kid than someone who's shorter. Okay, so I want to play uh, devil's advocate to that. So if you have two pitchers, one who's six foot five, let's say he's a pretty tall guy, one that's five foot ten, they have the exact same stuff, exact same mm -hmm. metrics, everything. Um, and you're let's just say you're a college coach, you're recruiting. And so you got this guy who's six five, and you know, he's man, he looks apart, everything. But maybe sometimes every once in a while his mechanics are a little bit off, probably maybe because he's so tall versus a five foot ten guy. It's like, man, it's just it's sharp. It's clean. It's every single time he doesn't have a, any wasted movement. Which one would you go with? It's a good question. Uh, I think it depends on what you're optimizing for as a coach. So and this is actually a, kind of a deeper argument that I think not argument, but discussion that people get lost in a lot, I think, is um, I think the player generally looks at it from how good can I be eventually because every everybody wants to be a minor leaguer a big leaguer right everybody wants to play pro ball so they're looking at it as like what am I going to develop how am I going to develop by the time I'm in my mid-20s you know whereas exactly what you're saying is the college coach is like look that's great I got to take some shots on some guys that might be good in the long term but we also got to win today and tomorrow so I think it really depends on what you've got uh, on your staff. If you've got a bunch of guys that you took shots on already um, that you're waiting for them to pan out, then like we need somebody to get it done now. So who you're picking changes a little bit. But if you have a bunch of guys, let's say you're super senior heavy or junior heavy um, and uh, you got a bunch of returners and they'll be there for a couple of years, then, hey, maybe you take the shot on the long, lanky kid because he might develop into just some powerhouse thing. But you understand that both are bets in either directions for different reasons. Does that kind of answer? Question? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. hundred um, percent. What's the biggest jump in velo that you've seen from somebody that you've trained? Ooh, uh, I mean, that's always going to be the biggest, I think, is not fair to look at because there's no. plenty of guys that have done like that have thrown slow. So 
they did everything wrong and they had never played before. So they started at like 60, you know, like that's just unfair. Um, But for me, I I like to hone in on the guys who are like, what I love is I love taking guys who are at their absolute, um, what they think is their absolute maximum. They've trained for years. They're in their mid to late twenties, maybe even in their thirties. Can we get those guys to get better? Because at that point, it's not about just riding puberty anymore it's about like no we have to be incredibly efficient with our training stimuli we have to be incredibly uh, efficient with our uh, understanding of how the throw works uh and uh how to teach that and how to get the athlete to actually send more energy up the chain and then when they do you have to give them more time than someone who has uh who's younger because they're going to take longer to adapt and it's much more fun for me because it's harder um so for those guys i mean i've taken a handful of guys from the low 90s to the upper 90s um handful of guys that used to be that used to throw really hard like maybe they used to throw 100 or they used to throw 97 or whatever and then when they come to me they throw like 85 and we get them back to what they were or slightly better um those are the fun ones but uh it i i feel like the underlying portion of this question is like how much velocity can you expect to gain from training? Uh, and it just all depends, depends you know, yeah. on so many, so many different factors, like what we talked about before. But what, what were so, what were some of the things that you did with that guy? Maybe he threw, he was low nineties and you got him to high nineties. Mm-hmm. Were you just changing exercises he was doing? Like what specifically did you, did you do that changed? I mean, that's pretty drastic change and you're already throwing in the nineties. Yeah. And there were a couple guys with that. Um, but you would be surprised People think that if you're throwing in the night, like what you just said, you're throwing in the 90s, it's pretty hard, right? But just because it's hard for other people doesn't mean it's hard for that person. And that's what I think a lot of people miss is like, um, if Araldus Chapman had terrible mechanics and never trained, he would probably still throw like 97, 98. <laughs> like that's that's important. So unfair. So unfair. <laughs> yeah, it's important to remember. So Uh, those guys there's a lot of guys walking around that maybe they grab 92 or maybe they grab 95 and their understanding of the throw is terrible their understanding of how to build adaptations is terrible their understanding of preparation is terrible they don't know what matters and they don't know the framework to understand those things that matter so then the things that, that you can only make so many decisions in a training program, you can only do so many things. You only have so much, like, obviously you've heard of, of the, the dollar analogy for training economy. You only have so much money to spend on your training economy. You only have so much time and effort and uh, physical like exertion. So if you spend those in terrible ways that don't actually do anything for you, uh, you can one, not get as good as you could be. Uh, and that could be by a wide margin. And then two, you could also get yourself hurt. And in those things, um, performance just decreases. So it's really about like, it's really about just understanding how does the throw actually work? Energy transfers through the body in a very specific way. And every piece in the body has a job to do at a specific time. So how I look at it is like, we are going to one, improve your understanding of how the throw works and we'll use that understanding improvement as like now we're going to get you to throw better and to move better but then two we're always trying to build each piece to do its job better 
So when you improve, that's, I mean, that was the formula that I gave you before, right? Which is how much energy can you send up the chain, which is just mechanical efficiency. And then once each piece is loaded uh, with that energy, how much energy does it rebound to the next one? So that's really all we're doing is like, let's send more energy up the chain. Uh, and we do that by understanding how does the throw work and then really identifying like, okay, this is, this is the big piece. This is how we're going to work on it. All the coaching stuff. Um, and then at the same time, you're building the physical adaptations of each piece, making sure there are no limiting factors, nothing keeping them from sending more energy up the chain. And those two combined end up getting you to throw a whole lot harder. The players who who increase their velocity, what would you say the percentage is they increase their velocity solely because they're trying to throw harder now versus mm. before? Yeah, it depends. That definitely happens. Um, so there's this really, where do I, okay. I think it is important for everybody to go that route first, safely. So safely is the big important point here because the amount of people that I've seen that show up and are like, I haven't thrown in six weeks. I'm going to velo today. That's not how it works. Um, there are rules to this thing. And I, I would love to explain the rules here so everybody had a good understanding, but I, I just um, not going to be able to, obviously. But there are rules to how uh, – throwing programs work so you have to follow those but in following those i think it's important for everybody to go uh, and build up to the point where they can safely throw as hard as they possibly can because i think what that does is it gives you a really really good look at how do they understand how the throw works and what are the limiting factors so when you look at their throw you can see them underutilizing certain pieces and overutilizing other pieces and that gives you clues as to like okay we need to attack this area both from a physical adaptation perspective, as well as a technique perspective. Um, and if you never get to that point, you never really get a true understanding of where your body sits. If you just flip a ball across the plate, you're not going to get as good of uh, an understanding of what is your strong points and what are your weak points as if you can get a video to get your hands on a video of them going with everything they got. So um, with that being said, um, think of, Let's see, how do I explain this well? Um, that doesn't last forever. So that strategy will work for a little bit. And the reason it works is because the whole stress recovery adaptation process, you are applying a stress from that high intensity throw, that athlete then recovers, and then they build an adaptation. But I'm sure you've heard at some point that better mechanics have less stress. Have you heard that? Yeah. It's the exact opposite. Better mechanics have more stress. They send more energy up the chain. The more energy you can send up the chain, remember these are stretch shortening cycles. You gotta load that rubber band and then unload that rubber band. And in loading that rubber band, the point of highest stress is when it is fully loaded. If you send more energy in to load that rubber band, there is more stress there. That is how that works. So it's funny because that more stress, yes, does theoretically increase the risk for injury. Now, you don't just get injured because of the stress. You get injured because the stress goes past your tolerance for stress. So there's always that important point uh, to remember. But at the same time, the first step in the stress recovery adaptation process is stress. So if your mechanics are not good enough to send enough stress through the chain, you will stop building adaptations at a certain point because your stress is not enough to continue building those adaptations. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. 
Perfect. So it's so better mechanics helps you in two ways. Well, two big ways. The first one is that you send more energy up the chain now. So you throw harder now, but then long-term that's sending more energy up the chain and loading each piece with more energy. Then if handled properly, we'll build better adaptations in the long run. So you both throw harder now and you throw harder later. Um, and uh, so it, it kind of doubles uh, work better mechanics are better for you in both of those ways and the opposite worse mechanics are worse for you in both of those ways so you see a lot of guys who like i'm gonna go train i'm gonna go try as hard as i possibly can then they try as hard as they possibly can in throwing they don't go anywhere because the problem is not that you're not trying hard enough the problem is that you're not sending enough energy up the chain to actually build new adaptations and then what do they do instead of being like oh i'm not mechanically efficient enough to send more energy up the chain so i'll improve my mechanics they just add more higher intensity throwing on top of that so then that's why they end up getting hurt so there's a lot of of nuance to the process but with all that being said i think it is very important for people to get to 100 intensity at some point um early on uh but safely what what would be early on what early on meaning like in their training career so um I'm glad you asked that question because it's important to clarify. I deal mostly with pros and and high-level college guys. So for me, early on is like high school. You know, I don't deal much with youth. Don't take any of this as as youth advice. This is all foresight um, longer into the career. Um, But I like using that higher intensity. uh, They got to get there safely. But when they get there safely, they're, they're safely prepared for it. That higher intensity throw gives you so much information about what we need to go attack. And then once you have that information, you go and attack it. But uh, remember, uh, you can get better from throwing harder and harder and harder, just trying harder and harder and harder. But at some point, you will run into the point where your mechanics are the limiting factor. And if you try and push through that door with more intensity or more throws at intensity, uh, your risk for injury continues to increase. There are rules to keeping yourself healthy. So, um, yeah, that's my thoughts there. How would someone know if they have good mechanics or not? That's a tough one. Um, the simplest answer that comes to my head right now is the get somebody who knows what they're looking at and have them uh, teach you how the throw works. So um, it hasn't gotten to a point where the information that we've uncovered um with the the guys that I was working with over in the motion capture lab, it hasn't gotten to a point where all of that is like public knowledge and a part of um, just typical, Oh, the typical little league coach knows if that makes sense. So I am a huge uh, supporter of people getting mentors in their careers. Um, One of the reasons is essentially what you just described, which is like, well, how the heck are they supposed to know Uh, you know, because someone else who has been there helps teach you. So, and no, this is not just because I train guys. I understand that's a very self-serving comment, Um, but I have plenty of mentors in my own life. Anytime I want to learn anything, um, I I immediately go and spend the money to find the best people I can find to learn because you just get a huge amount of value out of that. So uh, it's more than you asked for, but that's my answer is basically just, uh, I wish it was nice and easy to deliver just like here's how throwing mechanics work uh, and we're getting there time it will happen as time goes on uh, but currently it's not at that stage 
Command. Let's talk about command because you hear this a lot where all these guys are obsessed with just trying to throw harder and their command is bad. And I forget who said it, but I, I heard it. I heard someone say something to the effect of actually when you throw harder, your command should get better because you, you're not as stressed on the mound. Right. Go three. Oh, walk a couple guys and then tell me, you know, how you're if you're just letting it rip on the mound still, you're going to be kind of panicking versus if you're just, you know, letting it rip and throwing strikes and boom, you're good. Yeah, so where that comes from uh, is uh, obviously with uh, the amount of data in the big leagues, you can look at a lot of different things. And uh, one of the things is um, strike percentage or median miss distance based on velocity. And what you tend to see is a trend up for each guy. So what you tend to see is the harder a guy throws, the better their command gets. That's what this comes from. But it's important to remember the context that's around that. If the guy is throwing harder, generally he's also feeling better and he's less fatigued. So there is a little bit of like a cheat there, you know, of, of like some bias going on um, because everybody in their head right now could think of the guy who like rears back to throw as hard as he can, isn't looking at the plate at all, his butt's facing towards the plate and he zoos a ball off the backstop. And sure, it was two miles an hour harder than the last one, but like that's not going to play, you know? Um, so there are... The biggest thing, well, how do I explain this? Well, there's a couple big things that I found that are really good for command. Um, the first one being strictly mound reps, more and more and more and more. Um, and I know a lot of people are going to fight back on this and say, oh, well, there's no such thing as repeating your mechanics. Uh, because like, look, I've worked in a research lab before. I get it. You look from take to take. And, and uh, you look at the timing of different pieces and it is slightly different between each throw every time. So I understand the argument that says that uh, repeating your mechanics does not help command. I understand that argument, but I also know what it feels like. And I know my experience in training guys. And when I put them on the mound all the time uh, and we're, and this is obviously in a uh, throwing program structure that is safe for them. Um, their command gets better because they have more reps. They understand the timing of the pieces. Yes. If I was to put a motion capture lab uh, or put a, put them in a motion capture lab, would every throw be slightly different? Of course. Um, is there less variance than otherwise? Maybe. Um, but long story short, what I found first step, lots of mound reps uh, and intentional mound reps, not just like get on the mound and throw the ball wherever it goes, it goes, but you're actually trying to throw the ball where you want it to go. And you are practicing what you want to do. So when you're in the game, you're not just trying to throw the ball where you want it to go. You're trying to throw the ball where you want it to go at a certain velocity. So you do all those things together. Uh, you can't just get up there. Let's say you throw 90 miles an hour. You can't just get up there and spot up at 65 and expect that to transfer over to when you throw 90 in a game. It just doesn't. There are thresholds um, of, uh, of transferability. And again, we could spend forever arguing about what are the actual thresholds, which I'm sure you're very uh, well versed in. Um, but so that's the first one. And then the second one, uh, which is kind of more of a take home uh, or, or more of like a, of like a mechanical thing is uh, I see a lot of guys when they go to throw hard, they lose sight of the target. And when you lose sight of the target, the problem with that is you have to fire the torso to throw the ball but you can't see the target where you're actually throwing the ball. So you have to fire the piece that tells the arm where to go without really knowing where it's supposed to go. 
and uh, I haven't seen a lot of guys have success with that. Obviously, you can see some guys in the big leagues that start their throw and they're not looking at the plate. There's always exceptions to everything. Um, but on the average, majority of guys that I've seen, if they you'll lose sight of the target a little bit. But if you lose sight of the target a lot, uh, I wouldn't expect to have good command. So that then becomes the challenge is how do you get that good hip shoulder separation? which is really just pelvis and ribcage separation it has nothing to do with the hip and the shoulder. It's all about the pelvis and ribcage, which is a topic for another day. Uh, but how do you get that good um, stretch shortening cycle between the pelvis and the ribcage while maintaining sight of the target? That, that's Those are kind of the two things uh, as far as if you're trying to get better at command, throw on the mound more often in a way that is a safe throwing program for you. And then two, uh, do your best to not lose sight of the target while also making sure you put yourself in positions to still get that elastic uh, piece from the, uh, the structures in between the pelvis and the ribcage. Last, last thing I want to ask you about is recovery. What's, yeah. What are some of the things that, that you have all your pitchers doing, or maybe that just all pitchers should be doing no matter what from a recovery standpoint? Yeah. So the first one um, most important in my experience by far is nailing the training schedule to begin with. So if you put an athlete, through a training schedule that they can't handle, it's not, I don't care what recovery you do, it ain't going well. Um, so that's the first one, is actually making sure the athlete is on-ramped to handle the stresses that they are going to have to handle. That's step one. Now, step two um, is all the basic stuff that everybody hears about that's boring that nobody wants to do, which is like, oh, this is tight, I'm going to roll it out right? Oh, um, I shouldn't just eat cookies all day long. I should probably mix in some real nutrients. Um, oh, it's 11 o'clock at night. Do I play video games until 2 a.m. and then wake up at 6 a.m.? Or like, do I just go to bed? Like all that stuff. Um, there's also another one was a little bit more in depth, uh, which is just understanding your nervous system state. So what I mean by that is, um, your body kind of exists along this continuum of fight or flight or rest and digest. And uh, when you're training, you want to bring an appropriate, well, at all times you want to bring an appropriate nervous system response. Um, if somebody broke into your house right now and tried to kill you, you would want to be fight or flight. Let's go because you're going to be ready to, to keep yourself alive. Um, but that system can't be used forever. So if you use it for too long and you say too high intensity way too often, then it just breaks you down and you end up not being able to recover. So especially with the energy drink usage, with the video game playing that a lot of these guys do, they end up being in fight or flight for so long and then they can't recover. So understanding so that's a big one. That's kind of the beyond the, the obvious basic ones is like getting guys to understand that, look, you don't have an infinite battery. You need to recover at some points, understand what is the most important thing for what you are doing now for your goals uh, and send your focus and your intensity there. And then when you're done with it, come back down and relax, have a good time, enjoy your family, enjoy your friends. Um, and uh, don't just stay in that red alert phase all day long because you're just going to end up breaking down, breaking down, breaking down. And then at some point an injury happens and you're going to be mad because you didn't get any better and uh, you were stressed the whole time, and now you're hurt. So, what about throwing and running after you pitch? As far as like, does it like help the next day? Maybe like the next day, like you have a start, 
the next day? Should you for sure be throwing? Should you for sure be running? Or what, what, what exactly should you be doing? Gotcha. So there's a lot of nuance there. Um, with most of my guys, their in-season schedules tend to be more than what they're on-ramped for, which is not necessarily something we can control because, as you know, being around baseball as long as you have, um, not every coach understands how physiology works. So there are a lot of college and high school coaches that will force guys to go through throwing schedules that aren't actually physically sustainable. And I get a lot of them because they're looking for help, right? Um, so in those cases, throwing the next day, doing mostly anything the next day is probably a bad idea because you just took so much out of yourself that is not sustainable. Now that's a different case compared to somebody who's on an absolutely dialed throwing and training and sleeping and nutrition program who's absolutely crushing it. That's different for the next day. So it kind of depends. If you get into that next day and you feel like absolute garbage, there's no, you are not a tiny, bad, small person for not doing something the next day. That could be the best thing that you could possibly do is give your body time, right? Now, on the other hand, um, if you have, if you are absolutely crushing it and you've got, you have a really good understanding of how, uh, your body adapts to different training stimuli, uh, and you're looking to optimize your schedule, then maybe the next day you do something a little bit different. Um, but the, the whole point of this is like, depending on how taxed you are determines what you do the next day. So if you just like felt like you ran through a brick wall, it's okay to do nothing. And if you do something you might set yourself further back because remember the whole stress recovery adaptation process. If you apply, you apply a stress, which is the actual game, and then you're supposed to recover. So if you apply another stress, a lot of guys end up doing this. They go and do recovery work. And then it's like, you're throwing 80 miles an hour, man. That ain't recovery work. Like, what are you doing? Uh, and then, yeah, you're jogging, but you've been jogging for five hours. What are we doing? Like you can't, that's not recovery work. Like you are now training, applying another stress, at a point in time where you are already stressed and trying to recover. So um, I know I didn't really give a straight answer there. I would say the straight answer is if you just got your butt kicked and you feel like you went through a brick wall, it's okay to do nothing. Uh, if you don't feel like you just ran through a brick wall, nice and easy. I generally don't go above 50% intensity on throwing velocity the day after, um, which for most guys is like 60 miles an hour. So no, you don't just get to be like, I swear, coach, I'm trying at 50% and it came out at 75. Like that's not, remember, more energy up the chain, more stress on the structures. So if you go in, I don't care if it felt easy, there's more stress on the structures that's going to impede their recovery. So I think most people uh, do more than they should when it comes to recovery. And I think they think they need to be working for recovery when the reality is like most of recovery is just chilling give your body what it needs and understand that you already applied the stress and recovered from it. If that makes sense. Beautifully put Dean, appreciate you coming on the show today. If someone wants to follow you, connect with you, where should they go? So Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok, YouTube, all those, uh, double X can flex. So that's D O U B L E the letter X can flex, uh, same, uh, handle on all of them. 
Okay. We'll put those in the show notes and uh, appreciate again for you coming on, man. Absolutely, Patrick. Appreciate you having me, man. It was great.